We're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Daniela Guzman-Pena, a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. I'm your new host for Season 5, Daniela Guzman-Pena. For this week's episode and the first episode of the season, we wanted to share some of the conversations we had at State of the Net on February 12, 2024. The State of the Net is an internet policy conference series that's hosted by the Internet Education Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public and policymakers about the potential of a decentralized global internet to promote communications, commerce, and democracy. This year, officials from the executive and legislative branches joined internet and tech advocates in Washington, D.C., to discuss topics such as child online safety, AI regulation and governance, internet access and affordability, the legal and regulatory landscape on online expression, and more. Some of the Foundry Fellows were able to join the conference and discuss these issues live with the speakers. So for today's episode, we'll share some of the highlights of these conversations. Foundry alum Lemma Muhammad chatted with Jameson Spivak, Senior Policy Analyst, Immersive Technologies at the Future of Privacy Forum on the challenges of balancing progress and privacy when it comes to neurotechnologies. Then, Sasha Jovanovich, a Senior Foundry Fellow, and I sat down with Colin Crowell, the Senior Advisor and Managing Director of the Blue Owl Group, to discuss how internet geopolitics and internet diplomacy will evolve in the next era of the web. And finally, I had the chance to hear from Nicole Sadbembridge, counsel at NetChoice, about the legal landscape for Supreme Court cases this year, which are set to reframe the boundaries of online expression. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a wide-ranging conversation that showcases some of the key issues that were discussed at this agenda-setting conference. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Tech Policy Prime Podcast. I am here with Jameson, Senior Policy Analyst of Immersive Technologies at the Future of Privacy Forum. Jameson just did his lightning talk at the State of the Net conference about balancing progress and privacy, the regulatory challenges of new technology. So, Jameson, thank you so much for coming to the show. We are so excited to have you here. Um, I kind of just want to start generally um, what privacy and safety risks do your technologies create or exacerbate? Thank you for having me. Um, so, neurotechnologies um, build on um, the capabilities that existing technologies have in terms of their ability to collect data about our bodies. Um, and so, what they're able to do is learn or infer information about us um, that is potentially sensitive. So, whether that is um, health conditions, sexual orientation, um, religious beliefs, race, interests, behaviors, um, the list goes on. Um, So neurotechnologies um, allow for the entities that have access to this data um, to infer more things about them. Um, And certain technologies, uh, certain neurotechnologies, excuse me, um, may even potentially modulate the body. So that is um, either either regulating the body itself or allowing the person to control an external object with their their mind. And so um, bioethicist Nita Farhani says that the mind is the the final frontier of human privacy, um, and so that neurotechnologies that allow us to either directly know what is happening in the mind or to infer based on data from our bodies, whether it's conscious or unconscious actions, um, just really gives a much more intimate view uh, into our inference. 
Right, and so you talked to us a little bit about the trend. Why neurotechnology? How did we sort of get to where we are right now in this interest of even using the tech? Yeah, so in the past few years, neurotechnologies have popular, um, at, at least in theory, a lot of uh, the consumer market is not particularly large right now, right. Um, but it's, it's, it's growing. Um, you've probably seen headlines about uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink company yeah. <laughs> doing human trials, yeah. um, and there's actually a number of other neurotechnology companies that are further along than Elon uh, right. uh, in Neuralink um, uh, in, in the process of getting approval. Um, and so we're seeing a move from the healthcare context mm-hmm. to the consumer market. Mm-hmm. Um, Neurotechnologies in the context of a relationship between a healthcare provider and a patient um, will be covered by the Health Insurance Portability and Accessibility Act, HIPAA. Um, but data that is developed, that is, is created or shared in the context of consumer products uh, won't necessarily um, be subject to the same protections that are in it. Um, so one trend I think we're seeing is that the technology is just moving closer to actual use in the consumer market. Um, something that we're seeing more so outside of the U.S. is a trend towards recognizing uh, what's called neuro rights, right. um, which is an emerging collection of uh, uh, alleged a class of, of rights uh, that includes the right to mental privacy. Right. Uh, uh, so you might hear people say mental integrity or cognitive mm-hmm. liberty uh, or neuro privacy, and they're all kind of getting at a similar thing. We're seeing this more in Latin America. Mm. So in 2021, Chile became the first country to actually enshrine protection for neuro rights in its constitution. Right. Um, and uh, since then, we're, we've seen a few countries start to follow in their footsteps. So Mexico and Brazil in particular um, are currently, they, they've currently uh, introduced bills um, that would similarly recognize neuro rights uh, uh, in their constitution, um, there's a few other countries in the region that are that have interest in doing so as well, and so a lot of the activity we're seeing is taking place in Latin America. We're also seeing certain uh, international organizations such as UNESCO um, that are, are con- convening people to discuss neuro rights and neuro technologies. Um, but they, they they don't have the ability to, to create uh, binding laws, so they're kind of discussing it. As well. um, one other thing that I would highlight is that, specific to the United States, uh, the state of Colorado uh, is currently discussing a bill that would amend the existing privacy law in Colorado, the Privacy Act, to recognize neural data and biological data as sensitive data under the law. So what that means is that there uh, are heightened protections for neural and biological data as compared to other kinds of personal data, um, and, and more obligations on the entity that's collected. Um, and so that's that's the first, mostly the first that we've seen of that in the United States. There was another bill in Minnesota that hasn't that hasn't uh, uh, really gone anywhere that's been in the past few years. Uh, but. Uh, it's possible that if this goes somewhere in Colorado, we might see similar action in other states, um, particularly states that already have uh, privacy laws, uh, because it's much easier to build on top of the privacy law right. in the same way that Colorado is doing, rather than start from scratch. Right. Um, so you, you might to California or, or other similar situated states that might follow. That makes sense. And I'm thinking about the states that you know don't have privacy laws. How can sort of existing frame Works or regulations like HIPAA sort of apply to these neurotechnologies. Yeah, so so HIPAA will already apply in the context of um, neurotechnologies that are used by healthcare providers um, for patients. Um, outside of that, um, as you mentioned, there the, um, if, if a person lives in a state that doesn't have privacy law, um, this data will. Probably largely not be um, covered. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the specifics of, of, of the, what the different states do in terms of privacy if they don't have to law. Um, but you know, existing existing best practices around 
biometric data or right. um, body-based data could serve as a foundation for how these organizations can talk about handling it. Um, it's not going to be a perfect comparison because um, neural data might in some ways or maybe some of it should be treated differently than other kinds of data, potentially. Um, so it might not be the, a, a perfect one-to-one fit, but at least as a starting point for places where there isn't existing law, it could serve as a foundation. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what privacy principles can companies sort of developing these neurotechnologies think about adopting in regards to neural data? Yeah, so um, an obvious one that might be really difficult to operationalize is data minimization. Right. Practice principles. Um, I say it might be difficult to operationalize because with uh, neurotechnologies and other certain kinds of emerging technologies, it may be hard to minimize data collection when the data is needed to power the technology in the first place. Um, So that kind of puts companies in a really difficult position where they want to minimize the data, but if they minimize the data, then the product either will be much worse or function at all. Um, So there has to be some kind of you know, balance between collecting only what's needed and then also making a product in a way that people actually want to use. There's also uh, purpose specification and limitation, um, which is only using data, only sharing data with people um, for very specific purposes that are clearly delineated and uh, uh, disclosed to the user. Um, because a lot of times uh, with these emerging uh, data types like neural data or in the context of reality, eye tracking data, a lot of people don't, they're not expecting this data to be collected. Or even if they are, they might not really understand exactly how it works. Right. Um, So they need more education about how it works. Right. what could be potentially done with it? What are the privacy risks? Um, if, you know, if there's a cybersecurity incident, what are the yeah. security risks? Yeah. Things like that. Um, I think it, it is the role of organizations that are developing these technologies to do the education, but it's not it's not only their responsibility. Right. You know, it's, uh, uh, it is the responsibility of, of society, mm-hmm. um, of, you know, of other actors who, can, uh, who are not trying to sell the product right. uh, uh, to do the education as well. Um, and and I, I don't think that only understanding how it works is enough, uh, and only giving notice and only obtaining consent, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's the only thing that they can do, but it, it's, definitely, it's definitely a start, particularly for these really new kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned cybersecurity risk, and I am still thinking about the 23andMe um, recent cyber breach where really sensitive DNA data was leaked. So what are some of the really harmful potential risks to consumers um, if there are no privacy implications in place and no security practices in place? Like, what's the worst case scenario? <laughs> oh, man, worst case, that's... that's uh... <laughs> so there, there's, there's a lot of potential really serious risks. So uh, neural data can be used to infer uh, really sensitive information about our health. Um, so it can be used to infer whether we have a certain condition, whether we are predisposed to a certain health condition, um, whether you know we have a certain neurological disorder or, or um, have one eventually, um, and so you think about it in the context of uh, workplace or health insurance. Um, you know, if, if that information could be used against somebody, um, whether in employment decisions, whether in uh, health insurance decisions. Um, another example that comes to mind is the use. Um, 
for productivity in the workplace. So, right. neurotechnologies hold a lot of promise in uh, if they're used as a, as a consumer device to, to, to help people work better or learn how, you know, when is the best time to work and, and how, how to work better and smarter. There's a, a lot of value for someone doing that personally, but if it's mandated for employment, um, you know, there's some, I can imagine, some really scary scenarios of employers requiring their workers to um, have a neurotechnology device uh, that gives insight into their attention level, their focus level. Um, there might be certain specific cases where that's more reasonable. Um, you know, you think about people that are in higher risk jobs, like things where people have to really be alert and really have to be on because if they're not, you know, other people's lives are at stake and their own lives are at stake. I could, I could see some reasonable uses of that in one place, but it, it's a it, it, that could really quickly turn into um, a level of surveillance right. from companies to workers that uh, that we haven't seen before, and that would really um, I think uh, uh, cross into new territory in terms of uh, autonomy and dignity. For, for right, in the right. And before we wrap up, I kind of want to. Have you speak a little bit more about your your role at the Future Privacy Forum and your work in the space? So, what are you doing in terms of informing audiences? Who are you informing, and what are you hoping to sort of produce to sort of serve the right audiences and educate, like you mentioned earlier? Yeah. So, a lot of the work that I've been doing and, and will continue to do this year is to bring together stakeholders from different types of organizations. Um, so in December, uh, we released uh, a risk framework for body-related data in emergent technologies, um, which includes neural data, um, right. among many other kinds of data. Um, and that process was done in consultation with people from industry, um, civil society, academia, we talked to privacy engineers and, and scholars to really find some of the, the best thinking on this um, to, to pull together and to create this document. Um, a lot of what our, our, our target audience has been so far is on industry itself because um, these technologies are really new. There, there is not immersive technology-specific legislation, uh, nor do I think there should be. I think there should be more, more uh, technology agnostic, more general purpose. Right, right. Um, uh, so there are a lot of questions about how existing law does or might apply, uh, and a lot of conversation about are there areas um, that existing law does not apply to that maybe it should. Um, but in the absence of explicit law, um, a lot of our focus has been on industry to think of best practices, to think about what can we do in, in the absence of maybe explicit le legislation, explicit law, um, to understand what the risks are, not just to individuals, but communities, society, um, and then what are the best practices based on how our specific organization is, is developing this technology, how they're using data, what are the best practices that we can, can implement. Um, and so that's been our main audience so far, um, but, but that's what we work with people from across the spectrum and, and continue to do so. That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat about this really interesting and important topic and looking forward to reading the report and learning more. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Next, Sasha Jovanovich and I had the chance to speak with Colin Kroll, Senior Advisor and Managing Director of the Blue Owl Group, after his lightning talk on Internet geopolitics, how multi-stakeholderism defined the first era of the Internet, and we got his take on where Internet diplomacy is going next. The context for this, of course, is that in 2011, I became Twitter's first public policy hire. And I joined Twitter in 2011, very much inspired by the Arab Spring, uh, which had, you know, uh, you know, come out in many uh, places in the Middle East in 2010 and 2011. And so when I joined, I was very much taken with the fact that there was a, a, a platform uh, that availed 
uh, people the opportunity to have the, the small fee democratization of access to information where in the, the internet up until that time had really allowed, for example, uh, people on the edges of the network to speak back to controlling authorities. You could email the government or you could email a big corporation. And the internet uh, created new apertures and new avenues for that to occur. Historical communications was from top down. Governments would speak in broadcast format to the people. Uh, this allowed uh, the internet allowed people to speak back to the government. But the platform, uh, Twitter, uh, but other ones like Facebook uh, that emerged during uh, the Arab Spring, allowed people to speak horizontally to each other. So one person on one side of Cairo could speak to another person on the other side of Cairo and send me to this wherever in the Middle East. And what they would realize is, oh, there's somebody else who feels like I do about these issues. And in places where control, the ability of people on different parts of the network to speak to each other, not necessarily speaking back to government, but just sharing organs was um, a revolution in, in, in technology, but also on the ground. And so Twitter was inspiring, uh, I think, a lot of people at that time because of its open nature and had an open API. Um, it allowed historically marginalized, historically less powerful voices to enter the media mix with some of the biggest uh, corporate entities in the media on the planet. Uh, and so you didn't have to be somebody in order to be heard. And that, that was really um, uh, intriguing to me. And uh, so I left at the chance to, to, to join uh, at that time. And what occurred over time was, as Twitter grew, uh, and as social media the platforms of that era, it was obvious to me that uh, in my role as the head of global public policy, I was in fact acting as Twitter's secretary of state because I was the one who was traveling the world to engage with governments, policymakers, regulators, but also with civil society and working with consumer groups and public interest groups and human rights groups about uh, their use of and their perspective on the Twitter uh, streets. And so in that respect, uh, I had, um, had the good fortune to hire an amazingly talented group of people on the Twitter public policy team. And I would often tell them that they were ambassadors for the company in their markets. And so we very much took uh, to heart this notion that we were emissaries in a diplomatic sense from uh, the Twitter service to civil society and to Thank you so much. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind when you talk about this notion of Twitter having ambassadors is where do you draw the line between a, a good relationship with the government where you're able to sort of respond to their concerns um, but also not get too close to the point where you might be at risk of being coerced, or I, I think the word that this industry is using is job of. So how did you strike that balance between a good relationship and being an ambassador, but not being sort of entangled or, or coerced? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question because um, in some respects, uh, even civil society is sometimes schizophrenic about, uh, about this. Because in about half the world, by the time we hit you know, 2017, 2018-ish, uh, civil society would say governments need to pass laws to regulate the platforms, and you must obey the laws. So when governments pass the laws, you need to obey the laws. And then in other parts of the world, they would say, please don't obey the law, because that law is unjust. That law is censoring political speech. It is, it is impinging upon free expression. It is uh, contrary to human rights. And so we, as a team, uh, I would basically advise the public policy team not to say that we obey the law in the countries we operate in, but rather to say we respect the law in the countries we operate in. Because, to be honest, 
we couldn't always obey them. And in many um, uh, instances, we would get applauded for that stance. I think in that era, Twitter had a very uh, pro-user perspective on resisting government uh, in unjust and invalid requests uh, to remove content, but also for user information. So if you look at uh, that era, it's, it's still available on the website. Uh, every six months, we, we would issue a transparency report, and we would get this from our uh, uh, legal policy and customer safety teams with respect to uh, content requests uh, we had received from governments to remove content. And content and, and user information requests, and you could see the percentage of uh, uh, compliance country by country. Uh, and where we were resisting, you could understand uh, perhaps why. Uh, but even here in the United States, uh, if we got content for requests, we had a 0% compliance because of the First Amendment. Uh, and so we could stand our ground and have a very good, uh, uh, strong likelihood that we would prevail in the United States in the line, the, the contour of the line of what constitutes free expression and acceptable, appropriate, or legal speech varies from country to country. So we really have to navigate that very carefully. Yeah, and even that line is being sort of redrawn with these cases that are going to the Supreme Court, um, and we're starting to see that becoming more of a gray space in terms of the liability that platforms have to moderate content or to protect the content that's already on the platform. Sasha, do you want to chime in and ask uh, another question as well? Sure. I think to your point, multi-stakeholders have been in the last few years with the rise of internet sovereignty and more authoritarianism by certain countries around the world has also encountered a lot of challenges in the international community. Even regular human politics is becoming strained. Um, and so I guess looking forward ahead, generally AI, but also other tech policy issues, is there another model or improvements to the multi-stakeholder model that we can implement to sort of recover from these things? It's a, it's a good question, and certainly what I tried to reflect in my talk here at the conference was in the 90s, there were sort of three legs uh, to the stool uh, around uh, debates and the promulgation of the, the first era internet rules and laws. And the three legs of the stool were government, the private sector, and civil society. And so, in that era, as I mentioned, some of the internet companies at that time were just being or were so small that they were not major players in Washington in lobbying or in the policy fields. Civil society is also spinning up new organizations and others to engage with policymakers on the framework of policy in that era, like Electronic Frontier Foundation, Center for Democracy and Technology, the Internet Society, were all begun uh, during that era. And so, from that standpoint, it was more equal footing and give and take between policymakers and governments. Policymakers would take into account what consumer groups and public interest groups were saying on the internet. They would take into account what corporate entities were saying, and then they could pass laws. And they, uh, the laws in the, in the 90s taken together uh, created a policy framework that has largely lasted 25 to 30 years. So now it comes time to recalibrate based upon the lived experience, and we see things that worked well, and then we see where there are defects or deficiencies in policy that we want to adjust and change. But we also have the rise of AI and innovation. So as I mentioned, when you have platforms that are semi-quasi-sovereign, so at Twitter, um, we were exerting quasi-sovereignty over the service we provided to the extent to which our users were like citizens and our laws were the Twitter rules and we enforced our own laws. 
And so there were laws in the different countries, but we would enforce our own laws and fall back on the battle. So you have debates about free expression here in the United States, so you have a perspective, which is if I can go in real life to any town square in America and I can say it out loud, I should be able to say it on, uh, on Twitter or anywhere on the internet because that's my constitutional right. Now, on a platform, on a social media platform, at global scale and at light speed, uh, the implications of that on the user experience can be qualitatively negative. Like uh, uh, abuse, harassment, gender-based harassment, those things, people want community standards that may depart from what is, in a perfect uh, sense, a constitutionally protected utterance. But uh, at scale and at speed, uh, it, it can be quite uh, corrosive to the user experience. So we exerted uh, sovereignty over the service and we enforced our own rules. Many people are looking at AI and saying, okay, well, now you have these big companies, behemoths, that are going to provide uh, AI-enabled uh, services and applications. They are going to need tech diplomats to engage governments and civil society uh, because uh, if you take the analogy that many people make about the concern and the negative impacts of AI, to uh, nuclear non-proliferation. People have cited that as an example of why you need non-proliferation treaties or you need protections over the use, dual use of the technology. In the nuclear context, you could do that because uh, governments control uh, the, the mining and the sourcing of the material uh, and they control the licensing of nuclear power plants. Here, in the case of AI, the radioactive material, if you will, is not in the hands or the control of governments. It's in the control of private companies. And so the need for diplomacy to engage with governments over what that framework should be, but also the need for civil society to be more muscular in this era than they were in uh, sort of the 2.0 era. Uh, governments and civil society together need to be strong uh, two legs of the three-legged stool for the multi-stakeholder approach to work. Because if it is uh, dominated by the corporate interests, then uh, the, the public interests decide. To follow up on that, I feel like we're struggling nowadays to even find international cooperation on other kinds of topics, like climate or um, other related issues. And so I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like, what are your hopes for finding consensus in our community for AI, given sort of the reality, the reality? Well, in the 1990s, we changed all the laws because technology was also innovative. It was shifting from analog to digital, and the Internet had arrived. But we didn't do the job in the 1990s of coming up with governance frameworks for the era we were unleashing, the new services that would be born. So we're stuck with kind of a New Deal era regulatory apparatus uh, for services that operate at light speed. And so from that standpoint, one of the things I would encourage is to work on governance early in the process, come up with the frameworks and the regulatory and multi-stakeholder pieces of Because those can be more fleet than the machinery of government to catch up to uh, bad faith actors or problematic you know, applications and services after the fact, right? So if you take the, the climate change international cooperation example, uh, the IPCC, um, International Platform for Climate Change, or, uh, I think that's right, but the IPCC is a place where scientists around the world can come together, bring forth data about what's happening to us, reach consensus amongst scientists around the latest on where we stand with respect to that, uh, what the data show. And then policymakers and environmentalists and activists can have a debate over what we should do. But if you don't have consensus over the facts, if you don't have an entity that brings forward uh, a higher coefficient of truthiness to the debate, uh, then you're at square one. And so there are some good analogies in other areas. To, now, the IPCC hasn't solved the climate change. 
but you can't have a false faith without the, the base raw material facts that the IPCC can bring to the public. When you think about uh, legislation that's occurring in the EU or the UK, for example, um, on platform governance, so we're looking at the Digital Services Act and the Online Safety Act. These are really broad legislations that are creating these obligations for platforms, but it's really interesting because each platform has to sort of design its own compliance framework for how it's going to meet the requirements of these legislations. What do you think is the role of public policy in influencing not just the legislation itself before it gets passed, but sort of more of these um, regulatory frameworks that are going to be passed on later down the road to tell trust and safety this is exactly what you need to do to comply with our legislation? Yeah, I think, I think the best public policies, uh, the ones that stand the test of time, are ones that don't regulate a technology per se, but instead are principles-based or values-based. So, for example, in the Telecommunications Act of 96, as I said, things are moving from analog to digital, the internet had arrived, but the Telecom Act of 96 doesn't regulate the internet per se. It had certain values that came from the New Deal era in the 1934 Communications Act, diversity, localism, and universal service. Just because the technology changed, we threw that out the window. So we knew the internet was arriving and coming fast on the Netscape IPO was in August of 1995. The Telecom Act passed in February of 96. So it was there. But even as there was apprehensiveness about what this new technology would bring, so you see some of that apprehensiveness and concern reflected in the communications decency provisions of the fact that were thrown out court. Simultaneously, Congress was uh, uh, passing as part of the bill the E-Grade program that was trying to get the internet into every paper, 12 school, a classroom, and public library in the country. So there was concern, but there was also optimism, right? So I think in this era, too, you can have optimism about what, the, what it may mean for climate change or healthcare delivery or searching for new you know, cures for uh, things. But you could also uh, have appropriate concern over the uh, negative downside effects. In that sense, you know, one of the things about this era that we learned from the past, from the past era is do the governance early, be values-based and principle-based. The DSA, that you mentioned those acts uh, that are being promulgated in the EU, I think the provisions that will stand the test of time that are most important are the ones that don't focus on a technology per se or a particular service or platform, but simply embody values like transparency, access to data, because by illuminating uh, you know, how, the, how the platforms work, what their track record is determined about how they adhere to their own how are they enforcing their, enforcing their own community standards? And illuminating that, providing transparency, sharing data about that, that's going to be more impactful than trying to get into the nitty-gritty of regulating an algorithm, uh, which is probably next to impossible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you for having me. To round out the episode, we had a conversation with Nicole Saad-Bembridge, counsel at NetChoice, on the most important cases that are going to be heard at the Supreme Court this year, and that may redraw the boundaries on online expression and platform liability. Hi, Nicole. It's really great to have you here on the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Um, for all of those listening at home, you might hear some background noise, but that's because we're doing a live recording at State of the Net. And um, today we have Nicole Saad-Bembridge here um, to give a recap of her talk that um, happened today on the high court and online expression, deciphering the legal landscape. 
So, Nicole, to start off, um, could you tell me a little bit about what you do at NetChoice? Um, I'm counsel and associate director of litigation at NetChoice. Uh, what that means is I co-manage our seven First Amendment lawsuits. Um, I manage our weakest my program, so um, where we file, uh, asking for to find a certain place to support the, the First Amendment in uh, principles of free um, and I also do a lot of uh, AI and personal analysis. Really fascinating. So, Nicole, what are some of the most important cases that are going to be heard right now by the Supreme Court that relate to redefining the parameters of online expression? And can you give us some of your thoughts about what are sort of the most important learnings of these cases from your point of view? Absolutely. So, you know, last uh, many were calling it like the term of online expression, but this term is, is really uh, putting that determination to chance. So there are six cases before this report that I believe will uh, collectively, uh, in conjunction with each other, uh, really redefine what uh, the, the landscape of free expression Looks like. So, firstly, we have the Net Choice pieces. Uh, these were brought by my organization, uh, Net Choice, along with our co plaintiffs in 2021 over two laws uh, passed by Texas and Florida that seek to transfer um, private editorial judgment, so the judgment of the social media platform themselves over what content they like to publish, what content they like to take down, to the So HB 20, uh, the Texas law, among other things, forbids them from moderating based on viewpoint. So what this means is that if they post uh, users' content, Holocaust remembrance material, they must also post Holocaust denial material. And Florida's law, SB 7072, um, gives registered political candidates part block to post absolutely whatever they'd like. Um, and it also creates 30-day cycles of censorship. Um, that's uh, that, that occurs as, as a combination of its consistency provision and its uh, kind of dis- disclosure provision on the tools that they're they're using to monitor content. So, uh, yeah, so, so those cases will determine whether the government can have statutes to uh, commandeer private social media network content moderation policies. That set of cases um, are about job voting, um, which I like to think of as proxy censorship. So, what Texas and Florida are trying to do to online speech is via a formal statute. It's like um, a formal exercise of their government's power. In Murphy v. Missouri, and actually it's a companion case, NRA v. Polo, the government, instead of passing legislation or affecting regulation, they are sort of sending full-verge communications to the platforms that either threaten adverse regulatory action or explicitly threaten adverse regulatory action um, in order to get them to take certain stuff up and to leave certain content down. Uh, the, the final two cases are called uh, O'Connor Radcliffe and Lidke. These cases are includes of a suit brought, I think, in 20, gosh, 2019 by the Knight First Amendment Institute against Donald Trump. Um, these cases ask whether the whether government officials' use of their private social media accounts can become state action subject to constitutional scrutiny, specifically when they uh, block users or maybe remove their, their comments. And all of these cases are different. Like the the the, distinct, the questions that they're asking are distinct. But all of them will govern uh, for the foreseeable future what actions the government can take against online speech. 
And I really think that the questions in the non-choice cases and Murphy v. Missouri in particular as interrelated and codependent. So on the one hand, um, if the court finds for non-choice that Texas and Florida's efforts to commandeer private moderation violate the First Amendment, um, but the government can continue sort of nudge-nudge, wink-wink, implicit threatening them to, to do stuff, basically seeking to accomplish the same thing Texas and Florida tried to do, uh, whatever rule the court issues in the Netflix cases will be something of a hollow guarantee. Um, on the other hand, if the court finds somehow that states forcing platforms to host content that affects their values under crippling civil penalties somehow does not violate the First Amendment, it seems that it conceivable to me uh, that a tersely worded email from the, the Biden administration, which is one of the facts alleged in the, the Murphy case, um, could possibly be a First Amendment violation. So these, these questions are, are, are codependent, to be sure. Um, and with respect to the social media blocking cases, O'Connor and Lindy, this relates to the net choice cases and Murphy in that how the court answers the question will change the incentive structure for the courts of the government when they use the private social media So, if the court issues a rule that says something like, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a per se or something close uh, to a per se first amendment violation when the government blocks its constituents on social media, um, so, so then immediately they can no longer do that. So, if they have harassing you users, users that are disrupting the integrity of the, the conversation on their platform, uh, they'll now be incentivized to engage in the kind of job owning that the birthday case uh, concerns. So, you know, to be clear, I don't think that's the rule that they're going to issue, but, but these, these cases uh, together will, we were really thrilled to say that they took all six cases because these are three open uh, questions that has created a lot of uh, confusion in the court below. Yeah, and it's clear that some of these cases, their outcome might be in tension with one another. Um, when it comes to job boning, this is a issue that's kind of re-emerged because of the Murphy case. What do you think is the importance of defining what implicit coercion means? Yeah, so proxy censorship is censorship. Like, the government should not be able to achieve indirectly what the First Amendment prohibits it from achieving directly. And I think without a clear limit um, on, you know, the line between uh, convincing and coercion, uh, criticism and threatening, Persuasion and intimidation, um, requests and commands, advice and demands. That's quite a list. Yes, indeed. That, that's, that's the state of the law at the moment. Um, <laughs> It, 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 it damages the public confidence in the integrity of the discourse, honestly. If, if the public knows, and uh, as they're certainly starting to realize, that the government may be, in some sense, curating what speech we have access to behind the scenes, I think that's a serious problem. Um, and as the net choice cases highlight, when, when they are uh, job owning, when there's not a clear limit on what they can do and can't do, they're also creating a First Amendment injury to the direct target of their job owners, so the online communication. Um, content moderation, also known as editorial judgment, is a right that falls squarely within the First Amendment's ambit of protection. And so when the government is browbeating uh, the platforms to take certain actions, and there's no limit on it, um, they're continually creating constitutional agency. This is really fascinating. When it comes to um, content moderation, we've seen a lot of legislation happening across the pond in the UK and EU, particularly with the Digital Services Act and the Online Safety Act. And these um, legislations have come out of advocacy, particularly for child safety. Here in the US, uh, we don't have federal legislation that sort of up, right, and that's something that Trace has been begging Congress for for 10 years, yes. Yes, and so what we do have are these six Supreme Court cases that do sort of define some of the liabilities or obligations that platforms have to moderate content. 
What is your view on some of the ways that EU policies and, and regulations might be seeping into the consciousness of the American litigation landscape in the perspective of how online safety might be sort of the impetus for changing some of these content moderation regulations and rules? Yeah, so, okay, so one imported law that NetChoice in particular is very familiar with is the Age-Appropriate Design Code Act, which was borrowed from a state regulation, I think actually written by a duchess or some other person of some kind of nobility. Um, so, Look, a national privacy law is something that we've asked for for a long time that would be welcome and well overdue, but the proposals that we're seeing uh, coming from across the pond, including the DC, um, fail in their efforts to protect children. So the AADC in particular requires intrusive data collection on all users for the platform to avoid crippling liability for showing users content or, as they call it, design that may be harmful to them. Um, and in the process, it creates this weird uh, system that kind of deputizes private websites, large and small, to serve as, as uh, censors um, on the California government behalf. And this lies in the UK and the EU because they don't have the first amendment. In the United States, we have very sharp limits on what action the government can take against speech. So what the uh, AADC does, as I, I kind of said before, is prepare uh, websites from you know, the New York Times to Twitter to Tector to a, a popular cooking blog. There's a, there's a size requirement, but it's quite low to identify, mitigate, and eliminate content that is harmful or may be harmful to minors. So these terms are so vague that they are certainly going to be subject to abuse. I mean, one, one regulator might find that uh, any content questioning California's uh, position on identity politics is harmful. Another regulator might think that advertising for gender affirming care for kids is, is harmful as to go uh, after online services, large and small, for uh, posting them. And, you know, New York Times wrote a really, really amazing amicus brief in, this, in our case over the ABC, which is called Deadwords and Content, explaining that um, some of the most impactful and important journalism that we know concerns controversy and, and suffering and sometimes violence. Um, you know, the Pulitzer Prize photography is, is so often images of suffering that, that resonate with people that are poignant. And under the California law, uh, California regulators would be empowered to go after the New York Times for showing that to anyone under 18. That's, that's just nuts, and it, it doesn't apply in the American system. It brings up a really interesting point about the, the way that social media plays a role in reporting human rights violations and atrocities and that that content doesn't necessarily fit into the same bucket as other types of harmful or toxic content. And the, the limits around that, the boundaries, um, are being drawn as we speak. And so it'll be really interesting to see how these six Supreme Court cases um, play out. Nicole, it's been really wonderful to have you on the podcast, and thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge about these cases and about First Amendment issues with us on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we hope to have you on a longer episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Be sure to check out The Foundry on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It really helps out the show. If you're interested in supporting the show, reach out to us at foundrypodcasts at ilpfoundry.us. You can find our email in the show notes as well. See you next time.
The Tech Policy Grind podcast was created by fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. It's produced and edited with support from the Foundry Fellows. In this episode, co-host Lemma Mohammed, Sasha Jovanovich, editor and co-executive producer Evan Enzer, and myself, Daniela Guzman-Pena, contributed. Special thanks to Jameson, Colin, and Nicole for their collaboration and support in bringing this episode to air. I and other Foundry Fellows engage with the Foundry voluntarily and in our personal capacities. The views and opinions expressed on air do not reflect on the organizations we are affiliated with.